Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Welcome everyone to today's event, which forms part of the LSE Festival. How do we get to a post-COVID world? Um, and, you know, as you know, um, this, the LSE Festival has been taking place um, this week as part of a whole year of activities at LSE, exploring the practical steps we could be taking to shape a better world. Uh, my name is um, Dr. Omar Al-Ghazi, and I'm Assistant Professor in the Media and Communication Department um, at LSE. And I am um, very pleased to be chairing this event and to be welcoming you today. Uh, we will be talking about um, media and refugees in this event. <clears throat> the, the event is titled um, The Age of Refugees, but um, I'm sure my, uh, my colleagues, you know, we're, we're going to be also critical about media representations of refugees. And I think kind of start off with, with uh, framing the event, um, like maybe the age of refugees uh, is also a media frame that makes it sound as if we are living in an exceptional kind of stage of refugee movement, which is not the case, as we know that um, migration and, and refugees are, as a, as a and movement of people is a phenomenon as old as, as humanity. So that's just like a caveat at at the beginning that uh, the, the media makes us feel that it is exceptional, but it is, it is not. But anyway, I'll start by introducing my, um, the, the panelists um, today, starting with um, Abdurrahman uh, Bidawi, who is um, was working as a project administrator for Breaking Barriers, young citizen, um, and he is a young citizen trainer for Coram, which is a refu refugee charity in London, and a volunteer ambassador for um, Voices Network. He is also um, a Syrian refugee. Um, Miria Georgiou is professor in the Department of Media and Communications at LSE, where she also serves as research director. For more than 20 years, she has been researching media and communications role in constructing meanings of identity and citizenship, including amongst migrant populations. Um, and uh, Eva uh, Polanska um, Kimongi, right, is a research fellow in the Department of Media and Communications at LSE. Eva comes from a professional journalism background, and her research examines media uh, politics, uh, relation, the relation between media and politics, political communication, and the role of international media and narratives in, in foreign affairs. Um, and Rob Sharp is a lecturer at the University of Sussex in the subject group of media, cultural studies, and journalism. Um, and he is a, also a PhD candidate at the LSE in the Department of, of Media and um, Communications. Um, for for those of uh, you on um, on Twitter, did, did you already did you finish or okay? So this is outdated information. So he's uh, like he finished his PhD in the department um, recently. <laughs> so um, for for those uh, Twitter users in the audience, the hashtags for today's events is um, hashtag LSE Festival, and um, I would. Please ask you to uh, put your phones on silent so as um, the speakers are not um, interrupted. And as um, also, if you um, don't know already, the event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as um, as a podcast uh, following the the festival. So, without uh, further ado, Abed, uh, do you want to to kick us off? Yeah. Hi, everyone. Uh, I did not can hear me. Hi everyone, uh, my name is Abdurrahman and I am a Syrian refugee. I came to the UK four years and a half ago and currently I'm working as a project administrator for Breaking Barriers, which is I am neighbor, I'm next door literally. So I work there uh, as a project administrator. So basically we work on finding job opportunities, educations and uh, just helping refugees to integrate more into society. And um, so this year, I'm so pleased that I am a Refugee Week ambassador. So uh, I 
I'm also I'm so happy to be here with you. And uh, yeah, that's who I am. Um, like maybe if you, we're gonna go one by one. So if you like, you had your uh, presentation and uh, okay. To... Uh, so basically, um, I think the first thing that I'm start with is that being a refugee, I'm, I'm more interested in the media how it shaped the attitude toward refugees more than its effect. So for example, uh, we see that refugees has to be example all the time. So as someone, as a refugee or immigrant, you have to act in a perfect way all the time in front of people because anything will, anyone will see anything from English people will say, okay, it's fine. However, if you are a refugee or immigrant, you'll start saying that, okay, this is not good. Just look what immigrants are doing in the community. What, this is the reason why we don't refugee. This is the reason why we don't immigrant. And basically, one of the things that I'm really finding it's uh, very annoying is that when you see a successful story of a refugees or immigrant, you will find a very small uh, social media platform, maybe new newspaper or small social media account will publish or share the story. However, when you see uh, something that the refugee done crime or anyone like immigrants or refugees and crime or something bad, you will see big, huge social media platform sharing the story, saying that, look what happened. And definitely, I think when we are seeing that any election in Western countries, including USA, so they are not talking about any developing, they are not talking about anything in particular. The only thing that they are talking about is immigrants and refugees and why we, they are uh, hosting refugees and immigrants are holding us from developing or moving on and this is something that's really really hard to just continue um, to see on social media especially if someone working hard studying hard doing whatever possible to make his life and to make a positive impact in the community and then you will see that when you open tv you will see that all social media to just attacking refugees and immigrants for no reason at all. So this is my overall um, uh, view on this subject. Mm -hmm. Thank you, thank you very much, Abid. And we'll be coming back kind of to, to the um, ideas that, that you suggested. But maybe first we'll uh, hear from uh, Miriam. Do you want to go ahead? Um, thank you. I'm not sure. Yes, yeah, you can hear me. Okay. Um, thank you all for being here. Um, we have all been asked to think about how we consider media and communications in relation to um, refugee um, experiences and refugee representations. So, um, um, being given this question, I've also thought about uh, what do I know and what have I learned from my research in relation to this question. And perhaps one thing, the headline of what I have learned is that perhaps what we should be considering is that this is not the age of refugees, but the age of borders. So um, what I would like to do in, my, in this initial contribution is to actually say something about the border, because I think the story of refugees as we know it and understand it and try to make sense of it at the moment is so much a story of border. And more and more also it's a story of the digital border as well. So let me explain what I mean first with two examples from my own research. In December 2015 and in the early days of the so-called refugee crisis, I was conducting research in one of the entry points of Europe uh, when refugees were arriving at the island of Chios. So um, one of the images of the, uh, uh, that, uh, that captured the, that sentiment and the media experience of that moment was when the dinghies, the small boats, were arriving on the island. And very often and mostly they were arriving in the middle of the night. And um, what you could often see was a glow in the dark sea because many of the people on board had their smartphones uh, and their smartphones worked as um, navigators, uh, they were often using GPS um, technologies to find their way. And really at those moments, literally GPS technology very often functioned as life-saving technologies because people could find their way 
in the dark, and also they could call for help um, if they needed to. Fast forward six years later, um, and uh, my recent research with young refugees in the city of Athens. So speaking to many young people uh, from Syria, from Afghanistan, from Sudan and elsewhere, I heard them again and again saying that they had to throw away their phones before going on the boat for that dangerous trip. And that really um, uh, surprised me and shocked me. And the answer that they all gave was that they had to get rid of their phones because it was very easy for the authorities otherwise to track them and to push them back using that same life-saving technology to actually this time push them back and deny them the right to claim asylum and protection to Europe. So why do I refer to these stories uh, uh, in my starting comments? Because um, the border, uh, uh, I think, is not just um, a stable point in the map, and it's not only a point um, that refugees uh, cross or try to cross after they become refugees. But in fact, the border is a set of technologies that itself makes or unmakes refugees and gives access to protection or takes it away. We know, for example, that uh, people who were arriving as refugees in 2015, uh, people, most of the people or many uh, people from Syria were then recognized as refugees, but now they're not. Many of them are just now downgraded to migrants. We know that now, as Abdul Rahman also mentioned, many of the people who, um, uh, in a different moment, we might consider them as refugees, are considered as not, uh, not refugees and compared to the new refugees, to the new worthy refugees, people from Ukraine, who many, many politicians are also calling the real refugees, unlike people who are coming from other war zones. So these, uh, these stories are familiar to us, of course. And these are stories, I think, that remind us that, um, that the story of, uh, of refugees, of naming, uh, recognizing, or denying recognition of refugees is not played out only in legal terrains anymore. It's not even only played out in political terrains anymore, but it's also played out, of course, in the media, in the media and through communications. And it does so, I think, in three different ways. And again, I want to mention um, uh, some examples um, in brief. So the first way in which um, uh, uh, we have to think about how media uh, make or unmake refugees is through the identification of migration. So um, the, um, the first example here, and those of us who have experience from the uh, outer borders of Europe, know that the uh, people, the, the first point when people become or unbecome refugees is when they try to cross national borders. Because this is the moment where data profiles are, uh, are constructed for those people who are trying to cross the borders. And what is striking is that that um, uh, that experience of, uh, of seeking and perhaps finding or being denied protection is very much uh, subjected to those rules of datification of the border. And in a recent project that I have been doing in at, uh, the Ukrainian-Polish border, um, which um, Eva is very familiar with, it was striking to see that even in this case where we have that exceptionally good refugee, people were still kept for hours and days at the border to, uh, so that their data profiles would be constructed and so that people would be checked on whether there are actually more risks, uh, they present risks to the nation and Europe. So the identification uh, of the refugee is a process that in many ways now uh, supersedes and frames life, um, that life-changing experience. And of course, as Abdul Rahman said as well, this is an experience, the identification of refugee life is not only taking process, uh, taking place when people cross the border, but also even when they settle in, uh, in uh, European cities, when people are constantly surveyed and the, uh, those initial data profiles are reproduced and shared in relation to work, education, health, uh, and so on, and where all of us 
citizens or residents are expected to act as border guards. So we have responsibilities, academics, to, re to report uh, people who are considered as risks. Um, am I? Okay. Um, and so uh, we, um, I want us to think, yes, about this process of how data uh, makes and unmakes refugees. And of course, um, media and media storytelling makes and unmakes refugees. And I won't say much more in relation to that because I'm running out of time and because I know Eva is going to be talking more about it. But of course, we have to think those frames uh, through which uh, media, both mainstream media and social media, the narrow frames through which uh, we are uh, invited to think about refugees. But the last point I want to make is that we have technologies of bordering that relate to the identification of people's lives and, um, and identities. We have the uh, 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 bordering um, uh, uh, refugee lives through media storytelling, but I think it's also important, and I want to, uh, to leave you with that, that the border does not only imply control, but it also implies ruptures. And it is sometimes those very simple and, uh, and mobile uh, communication technologies that become a pocket-sized archive of migration and uprooting. And this is in many ways that little uh, technology, which of course is not uninterrupted, as my first example shows, that uh, is a uh, it's a technology that becomes a witnessing technology of life before, during, and after uh, uh, forced migration. But it's also a technology where people can become ordinary. So that ordinariness that is denied in the media to refugees and migrants, they, it comes back in the way that people use uh, their smartphones. And I, uh, I will just mention, as I, uh, as I finish, another example from my recent um, uh, field work at the Ukrainian and Polish border, where we were in a camp by the border, and there was a group of people that had nothing. And of course, uh, they had uh, phones. Um, and, uh, and a 17-year-old, guy was showing us his Instagram profile. And what he was showing us is just him being a teenage boy. His profile and their uh, self-representation that he wanted to share was not very different to another teenage boy that I have come across. So, so to, uh, to conclude, media communications are fundamental to border making. And the story of the borders is not a story only of security uh, and asylum, but it's also, of course, a story about how we come to make sense of what forced migration and refugees are. Thank you. Thank you, Miriam. Um, yeah, Rob, do you? Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. So yeah, thank you to the LSE, thank you to Mary for inviting me. So um, I'm going to play a couple of um, short videos. I'll talk briefly about my findings from my PhD project, and then I'll just uh, raise some questions maybe for the audience for whoever wants to, to discuss uh, at the end. So just by way of introduction, um, uh, I, my PhD project was uh, working uh, in community centres in the northeast of the UK and in South Wales, um, looking at the so-called promise of voice. So the language around the promise of voice is very prominent. Lots of NGOs, lots of charities, lots of arts institutions talk about promising people a voice. <laughs> And I think it was important to kind of interrogate that um, through, um, through a longer research project. Um, and what I did was I worked um, using a, a fluid methodology around creative storytelling um, with people um, who were going through the asylum system in these two cities. So I, I want to show just a couple of videos. Um, the first one is, is by um, a young Iranian man called Basir. I think you need to... Oh, I will turn it on. on. Oh, yeah. That would be helpful. <laughs> Uh, video mute. Right. And um, uh, I'll play that very shortly. And then the second one was by, by um, a young man for the DRC called, called Victor. Um. No, you can't. I don't to be a hero. But I think I can't. No, you can't. But how? Just believe yourself. You can do everything. Yes, but look at him. 
he's very strong, but I'm not. I'm sure you're better than him because you had more training. I lose in a competition. Why? Because I don't believe myself. If you want, follow your dream and be a hero. Just you need to believe yourself and follow your dream. Just change your mind and do anything what you want. Very interestingly, I think, framing life of a man. Bonjour, je parlais de la vie de l'homme. En soi, la vie de l'homme, elle est toute courte et sans cesse agitée, d'après les expériences et les réalités de la vie. Lorsque nous naissons, ça ne prend pas longtemps, l'homme quitte pour sa croissance et son développement. Après un temps, il va changer pour embrasser la vie estudiantine communément appelé les études ou écoles et enfin il faut aller dans, embrasser une carrière professionnelle et là c'est aussi un défi et après il faudra fonder un foyer ou une famille et là ça va aussi trop vite et enfin la destinée finale qui est aussi un mystère qui constitue la fin de tout homme Peu importe les succès réalisés, peu importe toute la réussite que l'homme aurait fait, peu importe aussi sa classe sociale ou son rang social, peu importe tout ce que l'homme est devenu, tout ce que l'homme a réalisé, là vient une réalité à laquelle personne ne peut s'en passer, qui est appelée la mort. Ceci constitue la synthèse de la vie de l'homme dont on parle, elle est courte, Et réellement sans cesse agité. Moving language, it's basically saying everyone is the same, um, everyone has a sort of similar experience. And that was one of the, the kind of major findings of the work. That these promises of voice through self representation are limited, they tend to, to revolve around certain themes that, that kind of revolve, um, revolve around, around these ideas. Um, so, the sort of the three um, ideas that I wanted to talk about that maybe we could think about were, were these questions of performativity that we've, we've heard about already. Um, so um, the pressure on people to perform beyond the asylum interview through these institutional spaces where people um, constantly feel like they have to be justifying themselves and their, and their positions. And this can come even through these very sort of fluid processes. Um, in terms of trust was the second thing I wanted to think about. So the fact that the people that I spoke to had huge amounts of mistrust of institutional media, both state-controlled um, and also commercial media, and also um, the sort of superficiality of social media as well. Um, so when there isn't that trust, what kinds of self-representation self can actually happen? Um, and also, thirdly, the question of intimacy. So we tend to think a lot about network communication through self-representation, digital technologies, but what is the importance of, of kind of FaceTiming or WhatsApp or, or more intimate forms of, 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 of uses of technology um, in order to create places and spaces where people feel safe to, to actually represent themselves? So the answer to sort of self-representation, I suppose, from the project was that in these, in these really regulated contexts, um, we need to think much more um, sort of holistically around that process, people's opportunities to contest those processes, to, um, to remain silent, to push back, to negotiate, um, to gain trust, and to, to have the kind of privilege of intimacy where um, they don't feel like they're subject to the regulation of surveillance. Right. Okay, thank you. I'll follow up and I'll explain then where the mistrust comes from, right? <laughs> so um, I've been asked to talk about the media representation of uh, migration. I have no good news to share. Uh, I've been involved in three research projects on uh, migration, one in, on social media migration, another one on mainstream media migration, and another one 
only their migration. <laughs> so I'll, I'll tell you briefly about all three of them. Uh, the first one was done in Poland. I come from Poland. Um, it was uh, looking at how politicians create migrants and refugees through political discourse and how this debate around migration and refugees happens on, is played out on social media of major political parties that were in parliament that, that, at that time. It was done at the time of the crisis in 2015 and 16. Uh, politicians, um, Central Europe was con confronted for the first time with the issue of accepting migrants. They usually sent migrants outside, but they never brought anyone in. They refused. They, they approached the issue and the migrants themselves, migrants, I'll talk about this in a minute, with an open hatred and open uh, racist um, language. For example, uh, for the Polish Prime Minister uh, at the time, it was not possible, for example, to distinguish between Muslim migrants and terrorists. So three different words merged into one for her. For Jarosław Kaczyński, for example, migrants brought um, parasites and cholera into the country, therefore the country had a moral um, right to say no to, to, to them. Uh, Viktor Orban, who was the most vocal of them, I'm sure you, he made headlines, I'm sure you've heard, uh, he called this um, the, the, the crisis um, a Muslim invasion that threatened his Christian uh, nation, uh, the Christian identity of his Hungarian nation. And then the social media that we explored um, were expressing the same sentiment. Um, I apologize for the language I'll use, but these are direct citations. Uh, people simply said, um, Muslims should be shot. Uh, they are not people, they are filth. Uh, lots of posts expressed open aggression, threats, incitement to violence, genocidal message, really. Uh, to, to keep in mind, uh, not a single refugee was admitted to the country, yet that language played out. Um, Poles wanted to help uh, Poles in the East, for example, in Kazakhstan, not the Muslim field, uh, to preserve, and that's direct citation again, um, the religious and racial superiority of Central Europe as the last bastion of the white race. And also, this one view that saw migrants or refugees, and the word migrant and refugees was used interchangeably, so maybe this is one of the things we could discuss later, what changes when we go for this word, not another. Um, some, some other posts saw migrants as economic opportunists, and here the issue of a smartphone is used as a technology of wealth, because it was seen, um, I don't buy this stuff about poor refugees, somebody said, those with the latest smartphones don't deserve our help, so they can afford it, why help them, right? So the technology of survival into a technology of, of wealth. But then it was not uh, Central Europe, uh, even openly racist, was not the, the, the isolated case because the same thing came from the Western nations, not just the populist leaders, but also from mainstream leaders. So Theresa May, for example, she went to the United Nations in 2006 and called everyone who was traveling across Europe this summer a migrant and called them openly a, a threat. They were simply a threat to the British nation. Um, then the second project we expanded and we looked at the more European, Central European countries and their mainstream media. And one more thing, the, the, the parties whose media posts, uh, whose social media pages we examined, they were not even aware of this. Some of them were liberal parties, some of them were very progressive parties. They promoted human rights, they promoted pro-refugee um, stance, yet the people who posted on their Facebook pages traveled in a completely different direction. So they were not aware, and, and, and I'm sure they had a lot of homework to do. Maybe now something has to be done about this. Then we went to the mainstream media to look across several countries in Central Europe, and then to compare that coverage of the same crisis, of the same people traveling towards Europe or across Europe uh, in Central European countries and here in the UK. And I was in charge of, of media, mainstream media here in the UK. That was the context of um, one million people traveling towards Europe that uh, in 2015-16 yet 2.5 million came as non-refugees and nobody noticed. Uh, so um, what did we find out? Again, um, the issue of um, the, the language of migration, not refugees, was, I mean, both were used at the same time. Migra migrants, refugees, more or less the same thing. Um, one frame uh, where that, that media portrayed the migrants, uh, how the language they employed, was as a security threat. So very similar to, to that in Poland. So this is the box or the label that was used for people from um, 
Middle East, North, North Africa, mostly Muslim people, mostly males. And they were always connected to crime and violence. They were seen as bringing this violence from out there where it is happening because they're coming from the areas of wars and they're bringing it here because they, they, they are rioting, they are angry, they are uh, destroying things. They were always seen and portrayed, not always, most often portrayed in situations of something to do with crime. Then there was another frame, that of victimhood. Um, that was mostly The Guardian, for example, a newspaper that very much sympathized with them, saw them as people, uh, interviewed them, talked to them. There were names and there were personal situations. Uh, there was a micro kind of scale approach from the perspective of one person. And at first we thought, oh my God, this is actually a good thing. But then because this coverage was always um, provoking the feeling of sorry for those people, a feeling of pity. Um, then we decided, no, it's not good either, because it sees uh, those people as powerless, as lacking agency, as unable, incapable. Um, and, and then I thought, when you travel across deserts and seas and mountains, and you have no credit card or a hotel room booked in every city you go through, that takes courage, right? That takes determination, that takes agency. You're not powerless, you're not hopeless. you making it, you're doing it. And probably not for yourself, but also for others. So those stories were not there. They were missing from, from the overall picture. And we came to the conclusion that this picture is not showing refugees, even though it's very sympathetic towards them, it's showing them as kind of half humans as well, right? And then there was another frame, economic threat, uh, and this is where I fit in because I'm from Eastern Europe, this is where, where Eastern Europeans were allocated. So the language of plantation was used, uh, strong muscles and bodies and uh, cheap and labor and farm work and daffodil farms and things, something that used to be called the plantation in the old days, now it's called the farm. So this is where they are. A brain or intellectual capacity or creative ability is not connected to, to the entire nation of Romanians and Bulgarians and the Poles. They also con um, connected to resource drain, and in the year of the referendum, for example, 86% of, of stories were linking um, migration with the economic drain, resource drain. So this portrayal is a little bit subtle. It doesn't use the open racist vocabulary um, as it, social media posts in, in my country, but I would say it's in a similar way racist it does build hierarchies amongst people because what emerges in the in the process is also the identity of those who help if migrants are seen as running away from poverty they are running towards the land of plenty which is where here in europe here in the uk if they are seen as running away from violence never explained why where it comes from this violence the wars that are mentioned or not mentioned they are coming to again the land of peace stability and and security so this is not always explicitly done, but this identity of the host nation is always there somewhere. So in the process, this hierarchy is built. Uh, the inferior species that depend on us, that come to us, that are associated with crime, with violence, or with the resource drain, and us, the good people who, who will help because they are good. So, so, so that hierarchy is very colonial because it does come from the colonial times when, when the language was, was used to describe to dominate the people and to link them to violence in order so that the, the policy could follow to contain them, to, to segregate them, into, to, to restrict their mobility and to, to allow them or not allow them to give them access, not to give them access to certain things. So this language is still there with us. So I'm not surprised that there is mistrust. People who come from former colonies, they know it. They, they know how they used to be treated, how they are treated now how they are described, how, how they used to be described, how they are described, described now. So no wonder that this, this mistrust is there. I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised. And the third project that I would like to quickly just touch upon is about Ukraine. We started the project on Ukraine, where we're looking at how the war is discussed and how the refugees are also discussed. I haven't read a single story that called Ukrainians migrants. That's one thing. And they are you said that they are always profiled at the border. They are not profiled in newspapers yet. They are not connected to economic uh, threat. They are not connected to a security threat yet. I'm not sure what will happen <laughs> if, if the war goes on. And we have five million of them. It's not called a crisis. 
it is a humanitarian crisis, but there in Ukraine, but it's not a migration or refugee crisis. So it seems like Europe can handle it. <coughs> and they have faces, they have names, they have personal stories, and there is a voice that they contribute to the stories. So, so why, how do we explain the different coverage of Ukrainians? One explanation could be, oh, media professionals have finally listened to Miriam's report and, <laughs> and learned how to fix what's wrong with their previous coverage. They have become compassionate and they have done their homework. But then there's another explanation. Ukrainians are simply white. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Eva, for, for that. Um, and I think, yeah, like there are uh, a, lot of, a lot of commonalities and I think the way that, that you all talked about uh, kind of the, the border, but also framing words um, that are used um, and all of that in relation to kind of media representation and, and technology. Um, maybe I'll, I'll pick up on um, the, the idea of the border, um, as you know, Miria said, maybe we can say this is the, the age of borders rather than the age of, of refugees. Um, so, so Abdurrahman, starting with you, like how, how do you think you've experienced the, the border, you know, like is it, because we, we talk about the border as if it's a recognizable physical space, but, but is it just that, what is it more than that? Like if you think of, you know, when you first came here or, or now? Uh... Uh, so definitely, but just I want to start with uh, some of my colleagues said about being wealthy when you have a smartphone. And I think this is something I experienced myself. I work in a resettlement scheme and I help interpreting for a new arrivals, Arabic speaker refugees. And one of the, one time um, I was working with my group and we, were, uh, we went to the airport to welcome our first family and I was, I was extremely happy because I, um, I remember how I felt when I came to the UK and how happy, how happy I was. And then my group, one of my group saw that the family, they have two smartphones and then immediately they were saying that what we are seeing on social media is not true. They are rich. Why they brought, us here? Why they brought them here? Like we thought that the resettlement scheme is only for the most vulnerable people. So why they have smartphone? And I was like, I was saying like, rather than having a three kilo of dictionary, book dictionary, huge dictionary, I can carry it on my smartphone. Rather than having map and look around the city, I can have it on my phone. Rather than asking people about information about where I found restaurant, where I found hotel, where I found a, a patrol station, I can find all of that on my phone. So what is the role of having a smartphone? I need to speak with my family. I need something to support me. My, I haven't seen, for example, my family for a few years, some of them in Turkey, some of them in Lebanon, some of them in other countries. So why, do, why don't I have the right to have a smartphone so I can speak with them and I can communicate with them? And that basically that when the unfortunate Ukraine crisis happened, I was thinking that this will reframe the idea of being a refugee in Western countries so people would start to understand what it's like to be a refugee. And I was, I was saying to myself before that happened, I was saying that I am second class citizen. I'm not citizen, I am a refugee. However, when Ukrainian refugee came, unfortunately not because of them, because of the host community, I become certain, uh, second class refugee citizen. So I, I was like, okay, I was a refugee, but now I am not only a refugee, I'm a second class refugee. So it was very, very um, hard thing to feel, and it just like, it continued to go on and on. And I think talking about borders, I think border is not only physical thing, which is refugees, for example, myself, with the travel document I have, Literally, I cannot travel anywhere. <laughs> if I want to go to Turkey, if I, am a, if I am a UK citizen, I just can go to Turkey and just give them my passport, and that's it. But if you are a refugee and you have travel documents, you have to think, you have to speak with the embassy, you have to go and speak with the agency and stuff, and you have to put a huge plan and spend a lot of money to just get a visa to visit any country in the world. So it's not an uh, easy thing to do. And this is about physical border. However, it's not only that. I think social media creates a lot of other borders. For example, the language, which is something that I really find very hard when I came to the UK to learn English language. Uh, so it was, 
I think social media in this case helped me because I was watching on YouTube and learning English through YouTube uh, channels. However, also like I was so happy and I'm saying that now after four years being in the UK, my English become better. I start working, I'm studying. So now people will look at me differently. But the minute I open social media, I open, uh, I read the newspaper or I watch TV, I say, no, this, I am the only problem in the world in this country. So they have no other problem but refugees and immigrants. And this is really creating another border with the community. It's making me think that it's much harder to integrate into society, to be part of them if they are not welcoming me in the way that they should be. And I'm not talking about community in general, I'm talking about politicians and some of the community that they follow those politics. And I think there are so many other borders to talk about. I think we need the whole day to talk about, but it's just, it's very, very annoying. And I think one also social media, one of the borders that created by social media is like refugee will look, uh, um, weak they are they don't have power they don't have they cannot do anything by themselves they have to the other people they have to do that for example when we come to telling story so you would it's very rare to see that a refugee tell his story or her story of usually it's a social media taking story of refugee or framing in different way to suit uh, the British audience to, or to suit the Western audience. So even they don't give us the power to, for ourselves to tell our story in the way that we would like to be told. So it's really hard thing uh, to live on. And also, this is one also, it's very hard, which has happened just a few days ago, that we were trying in one organization, we were trying to host a refugee week, and then we chose 21st of June, and then they said, okay, there is a tube strike, and I, we don't think our refugees can uh, handle that, so we will cancel the event, they will not come, because there is a, uh, a, a train strike. I said, like, what is the problem? So why we don't have the uh, give them the power to come? It's just coming to an event. Say, but okay, we don't, make it, we don't need to make it harder for them, we don't need them to struggle. So what kind of struggle? Like, it just, they have to face the same thing that other people are facing, and we are, it's not good to treat them differently, even if you are trying to make their life easier. It's not like this. So yeah, and uh, I know I create a lot of <laughs> ideas no, no, together, yes, that's, but that's this great. came together. Thank you. Miriam, did you want to maybe pick up on like how you've conceived the border in your fieldwork? Um, how did you encounter it beyond the obvious, you know? Um, I, I think, frankly, there is little to add after what uh, Abdul Rahman said. I, I, I think that, as you put it quite rightly, I mean, the border is both territorial and it is symbolic. It's both on the outer uh, geographical borders of, of the nation, but also increasingly within our neighborhoods, within our cities. And of course, it is symbolic because we see it every day in our media. And in the media that we read and also in the media that we make, and I think it's very important also to keep what uh, Abdul Rahman said about very often with the best intention, uh, we do reframe the stories that we want to hear to create specific versions of humanity that fit all the different clients' roles. That's also, I think, well, both, both of the research has shown. Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. Okay, so I'm unconscious of time. Like, maybe we can take a few questions and then uh, get back to you and you can pick up on the idea of the border or, or questions. Um, yeah, in the in the back. Yeah. I think um, is there a mic? Yeah. yeah. And sorry, uh, just can you please introduce yourself first, very briefly? Yeah. Hi everyone. Okay. 
thank you for the talk. Uh, I'm Luna Balbaki and I'm Syrian. Uh, I'm studying at, uh, here, I'm doing my master's at LSE. And my question is, uh, you mentioned that mainly the image of refugees is seen as uh, related to crime or violence. How do you think media or social media can uh, portray a better image or show a better image of refugees? Thank you. Thank you. Um, yes, go ahead. Uh, also, please introduce yourself briefly. Thanks. Uh, my name is Ali Mirage. I'm an alumnus of the LSE and uh, also a political columnist and an infrastructure banker as well. Um, I just wanted to ask Ava, so you mentioned this thing about whiteness. Um, however, where do you, or do you see any justification or understanding on the part of, for example, the Polish or Hungarian governments on two points? One is uh, cultural uh, identity and the fact that people from very, very different cultural backgrounds may find it hard to integrate. They're coming from a completely different cultural milieu, number one. Number two, um, is there any aspect of security issues that is acceptable for governments to worry about? And from our own experience here, we've had a number of terrorist attacks from people that have lived in the country from birth all the way through. So if you're looking at it from a Polish and Hungarian viewpoint, it may be the case that they don't really deem uh, Western views of multiculturalism to been that successful. The other point I wanted to make, and I'm glad you mentioned it, was this um, Guardian sort of uh, patronizing paternalism approach of the left, which Abdurrahman sort of alluded to right now, that we have to treat people differently and remove agency from them. How do we tackle that particular problem? Yeah, um, thank you very much. Um, I apologize if my question has been alluded to or answered because I've only just arrived. My, my fault, not yours, I can assure you. Um, the name's Ewan Grant. I'm now a broadcaster and journalist on uh, international security issues. Particularly, I've been broadcasting in the last few months on the war. Um, but I was also in law enforcement uh, for many years and I've worked in EU programs in Africa and particularly in Ukraine and Moldova. Um, plan B's and Plan C's for international organizations and the border states, both Mediterranean and Eastern, um, to tackle refugee crises in, in all aspects, humanely and effectively. Um, how many of the panelists are aware of the very serious reporting about misgovernance and worse at the EU border agency Frontex because I do believe in parts of the media and particularly international academia um, there is something of a silence about this perhaps related to don't rock the boat, it may affect funding. I would urge everybody in the room to take particular note of these problems because to say the least, they're not going to help anyone and they have to be sorted out. The European Parliament, to its credit, perhaps a bit late in the day, is raising very, very serious concerns and it has brought out the forced resignation of the Director General and several of his senior staff who coincidentally happen to be from the same country as he is. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Eva, do you want to pick up on any of the questions? All of them. Uh, the last one, I actually wrote an article just recently. It's in the making on, on the European borders and Frontex is there. I'm not sure that I mentioned all the issues you, 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 you talked about. But you're right, there's silence in literature on what it makes the EU, how how the way they handle the borders, not just at the sea, but also in Africa, because European borders are not in Africa. That, that changes the picture, right, of, of, of somebody or, or, or an organization that got a Nobel Prize for peace. So, so the article is in the making. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make a book out of this. I'm, I'm looking for a sponsor, so please push me in, a, <laughs> in a, some direction. Um, I would like to connect the questions about um, the politics of PT on the left, how to tackle it with the first question, how to produce a better image. Um, employ refugees as journalists. <laughs> 
exposure, doing things together, being exposed to other people's problems, not just uh, looking at them through your own lens is, is the answer, I think. So the more people we, we have in our school, the more they go into the industry. So once they get there, I guess, that's one of the solutions. I, I don't know if you have any comments. Uh, I think um, one thing that I'm trying to uh, work on, which is expert by experience, so all the time that when refugee charities want to create a new project or anything, they just ask refugees if they have any view. And then they ask them at the end, maybe they structure all the project, they made everything. And then at the final stage, they ask them to give them their opinion, say, what do you think of this project? And I think this is very big uh, uh, mistake because if you want to make a project to support refugees, you should involve refugees from the first place or immigrants from the first place, from the first step. And uh, for this reason, like, uh, and also sometimes like, for since I came to the UK in 2018, I participated in many events where the, they bring people with, uh, with lived experience and then they invite them for one or two sessions and then they will say, okay, now we have the project ready, we don't need them. And this is, I think this is very, also like it's a big thing, uh, big mistake thing to do because you should, first of all, pay them and contribute them, ask them to stay and run the project as well because they are the one who knows how to deal with this problem, how to work with other refugees, how to gain trust from other refugees to make stories and make this project successful. And also I think it's not something that you can do in a very short time. You need to spend months or years researching, finding uh, finding people who are really willing to do that, and um, like you need resources, you need a lot of things to do, and all of that can disappear if we have just a stupid politicians one and say saying something and saying that refugees or immigrants are the problem. Maybe all of your work over those years will disappear because this man or this person has more power and uh, people watching them more than you, more than your small charity. So I think it's really hard. However, it's possible. It's not like something that you, we cannot do, but you have to put faith in that. Thank you. Um, Rob, do you want to pick up on any of the, like maybe the question on, on empowerment and, and social media, like how does that relate to your, to your work? Um, I was, I was, yeah, I was thinking in terms of um, in terms of empowerment. Um, I mean, I, I was I, 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 there's one question in particular. Was someone was saying about this sort of liberal narcissism, which I thought was was interesting. And I think there's a danger that that basically obfuscates these structural problems that everyone's talking about. So there's obviously this huge symbolic weight behind this particular kind of leader organisations and this, this, this sort of so-called kind of um, benevolence that sort of re-entrenches really these power asymmetries. So, so I think, yeah, I think it has to be about sort of structural questions. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah. If, if, if I could come back to the question on cultural identity and legitimate security concerns um, in, in Hungary, for example, um, I wouldn't say that uh, security concerns come with migrants. They are everywhere, with or without migrants. But uh, our obsession with migrants, bringing that security concern to our country or wherever we are, is simply bloated, right? For example, in Hungary, uh, you have migrants uh, from sub-Saharan Africa leaving at Keleti um, railway station. They are left there with no income, with no support, with no visas to work, with no shelter, with no food. What do you do in this situation? I would go and steal food to survive. So the policy, the treatment of migrants, is making them, turning them into a security problem because they have to survive. So they would go and steal, they would rob someone, they, they would, but it's not why they came, it's not what they normally do. It's the situation that has pushed them in. And the cultural identity problem is, um, Hungary has the second biggest uh, population of Chinese people in, in Europe. They have survived it, regardless. They have Roma population, different religion, different people. They made it through centuries <coughs> somehow. So why would they not make it when the Muslim people come? Teach your population to, to live with others. Um, the same in Poland with uh, when, we, when we were doing the first research on social media, when there was so much hatred against Muslims, one politician we talked to, she said, 
oh, several years back there was 7,000 um, Chechens uh, fr from Chechnya. There was a war in Chechnya, they, they brought them. They happened to be Muslims. Nobody noticed. They were resettled, everything was fine. No, no big deal. And somehow when 2,000 of, of refugees from the crisis were supposed to be resettled, a big drama. We cannot handle this. They somehow yeah. handled three million. And, and also, like I think, I think a, a historic perspective on, like particularly when we talk about Syria and Eastern Europe, like under, uh, under the you know socialist Soviet era, there were many Syrians that actually lived in Poland and Hungary, like that went to universities. To yeah. So I, I like from my because I'm also a Syrian. So from my generation, I know a lot of people who are half Polish, half Syrian, half Hungarian, half Syrian, but that history gets, gets lost, you know, in this dominant media framing um, today, which, you know, that doesn't even show the connections between, like, Poland and, uh, or Hungary and Syria. But maybe we'll take one, like, if, if you have, like, a burning question, uh, yeah, go ahead. Thank you. I'm Dustin, student at the SOAS University of London. Uh, my question is like that: How does the media, like European media or like uh, like maybe British media, also dealing with the story of the refugee before the European border, like not in their border, like for example the Syrian refugee stories in Turkey, because like they are facing a lot of discrimination even there. Like it's a Muslim majority country, and like sometimes even they are, they will be used by the government strategy like to, to gaining the, like, uh, the things that they want. So how does that reflect in the media? And I'm not sure like about the even Afghan refugee because like even I don't hear about that because like they have to uh, like pass many countries until they reach the European, if they can reach any European border. Thank you. Um, any last question? Okay, so we'll take one last question from here. So I'm at the LSE as well, and I had a question more about gender. So there is quite a portrayal of like Muslim women, like saving Muslim women in comparison to Muslim men who are seen as like criminals. Um, so there is like a comparison there. But when you were studying media discourses, was there anything else you saw like gender specific about how they were either portrayed similarly or differently in those narratives? Just a, a quick couple of points. I, I, I think that's a, uh, that's a great question, very important question. And of course, uh, uh, their representations are, tend to be very racialized and very gendered. Uh, so in the case of uh, Muslim women, we again see that reproduction um, of very narrow frames. And again, when we say, and whenever says, or when I say, you know, we have the reproduction of certain dominant frames, it doesn't mean that we don't have diversions but these are the dominant frames. So we have uh, a lot of, of, we see very often the um, Muslim woman victim, and occasionally, especially in the liberal press, we see the empowered Muslim woman. So again, it's that state of exception. Um, the, and we came across in my research again and again, across women who had to tell us uh, to create all this narrative. I'm successful, I'm entrepreneurial, I made it, and I am a good mother, and I'm going to, uh, to be good to the society that hosts me. So that weight, that enormous weight that people have to carry comes through those very narrow frames. So if you're not a victim, you have to be a superwoman. You have to be super successful. In relation to Turkey, I think if I understood the question, uh, I, I, there's very little coverage about what is happening with refugees outside the national boundaries, let alone uh, European boundaries. I mean, we have a refugee crisis, a humanitarian crisis across the world, but we don't know about them. And the case of, uh, of Turkey, I think it's even more problematic because in many ways, Europe has outsourced its problem, made agreement with Turkey. So it's very much out of sight, out of mind. I agree, we didn't have much uh on migration happening elsewhere. It's, it's all invasion, all of them are coming to us. That, that's the, the message that the newspapers were creating. And yes, Turkey, if, if, the, if the border issue is outsourced to Turkey, so whatever happens there, let it stay there. So no, no coverage. Uh, I think because I came from Turkey, I'm Syrian, but I came from Turkey. Uh, so I think I saw that the racism in Turkey, like it's, um, I think it's more than in the UK. 
uh, literally I've been deported to Syria just because I was working in a supermarket and I have Syrian food, like, so uh, one of my neighbor just called the police and actually they deported me back to Syria when I was 17 years old. So I think it was um, a horrible situation when they put me in a prison with ISIS uh, prisoners in the same prison. So it was like, for me, it was a very a horrible situation when I was like only 17 years old. And until now, just a few days ago, I think two Syrian men being killed in Turkey, but just because they are refugees and or Afghani refugees, they just, uh, they consider them as non-human. They are working in factories, 16 or 17 hours a day, seven days a week. And when I see media coverage, literally I see, I saw nothing about it. Like maybe in Arabic social media, in some Saudi Arabia or Emirates or Jazeera, maybe they cover some of them, but not as much as talking about nationality and border bills in the UK or anything like this. So definitely there are a lot of work to do in this area, but literally there are, more than 3.5 million, like 3 million and a half Syrian refugees on more than that if we um, consider the Afghani and the Pakistan refugee and other Ukrainian refugees, also they are welcome there, but not the Syrian and the Afghani. There are so many people are suffering there and literally the government used the, this card to get more money from Europe or the opposition used this card to remove the Erdogan from the power, so they say, Everything happened in Turkey because of refugees. So just we will do whatever possible to deport them from uh, from Turkey. So yeah, I pretty much agree with you. Like we don't have media coverage on that. Okay, Rob, did you did you I don't know maybe uh, the gender question? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I just uh, it was very gendered in terms of self-representation. I, I certainly saw um, you could see in, in those videos as well as well um, that reflected. Um, the gender breakdown of places that I, that I, was, I was working. Um, so I, I observed much more kind of collective forms of, of voice among, among women. Um, um, so, so yeah, self-representation was also gendered in those very specific ways. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, so um, we kind of ran out of time. So for, um, let's thank our panelists for their great... Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.